The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. <laughs> it's better. It's better. It's getting there. How you guys doing? Everybody good? Yeah? Everybody have a good Easter? Killer. Richard, you might bring those down a little actually more. It is pretty blinding when they're... That's good. Thanks. Sweet. And the lights are coming on. While those lights are heating up, guys, go ahead and grab um, your Bibles. Flop them open to Amos chapter 3. Um, if you need to use the index to find Amos, then you're just like me, so don't worry about it. Um, if you don't, it's towards the end of the Old Testament. It's a tiny little book um, after Joel, before Obadiah, somewhere in that region. Hey, by the way, completely unrelated, I don't know if you guys know this, we're getting new lights in here, which is going to be awesome. We're getting LED lights. Um, we're kind of partnering with Cascade to get those. So um, the lighting's going to be so much better in here on Wednesdays and on Sundays and won't be like super dark, super light. So for those of you that trip around in the back of the church and all this stuff, it's going to be so much better in, in June. So praise the Lord for that. Some better lighting. Well, let's, um, let's pray and then we'll, we'll get right to work. If you guys would, and if you can, would you even just lift your hands to the Lord tonight, just in a, in a, in a sign of receiving from him and asking from him. Let's just pray this together. Father, I thank you so much, God, tonight, that you are worth discovering. God, that your attributes are vast, that they are eternal. Lord, that your holiness is something that we can gaze upon and think about and be in awe of, Father. I thank you tonight that, God, you, your word is worth exploring. Your word is worth discussing. I thank you for your infinite wisdom, God. I thank you for your infinite power and strength. I thank you for how you rule with absolute love and absolute truth and absolute kindness, with absolute holiness. Lord, I thank you that everything you do is perfect because you do it. Lord, you're the eternal one the creator of all things, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. You breathe stars. You speak and creation obeys you. God, tonight, with our hands open, we ask that you would fill us with more of you. God, that we would love you more and love this world less. Lord, you are the answer to all things. You are the truth and the way and the life, and we invite you into this place, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Amos chapter three. I'm gonna go ahead, I don't usually do this, but I'm gonna go ahead and read the text, um, and then we're gonna go back and, and go through it. So Amos chapter three says this. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is the trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants and the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? 
Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you. Your strongholds shall be plundered, thus says the Lord. As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. That is the word of God. So, Amos, what a book. <laughs> Man, this has been really good for me uh, to get into. You know, a lot of us kind of stray away, including me, um, sort of stray away from some of the prophets and some of the Old Testament books such as Amos just because they can kind of seem brutal. Um, they can kind of seem like a lot of wrath and a lot of judgment and a lot of things like that. Um, but what I've really discovered and as we're gonna talk about is um, as we read these books and as we understand these books, there's a reason that, that God gave us 66 books in the Bible. Because there's, there's a lot of attributes to God. There's a lot of aspects of God. Um, just like humans, we have different types, different parts of our personality, and as we get to know each other, we get to know different parts of who we are. God has many parts, and he has many attributes. And a lot of times we like to focus on a few that are sort of make us feel a little more warm and fuzzy inside, grace and love and forgiveness. And, and sometimes we neglect to look more at the other attributes of God, such as his holiness, such as his wrath, such as his justice, okay? And so what's good about these books is it forces us, it causes us to take a moment and to look at some other attributes of God the Father that are extremely important, as we'll look at tonight. Um, So anyways, Amos was a shepherd, actually, which was not super common for prophets. He wasn't someone that was... uh, living or in and around political um, places. He wasn't someone that was high up socially. In fact, he wasn't even from the place he was prophesying at. Okay, now if you guys were here last week, I talked about the fact that Israel as a nation, um, by the way, about 3,000 years ago from today, uh, Israel as a nation was actually split in half. It was two kingdoms at this time, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Okay, the southern kingdom called Judah, the northern kingdom called Israel. Now, Amos was a uh, sheep herder, a, uh, a shepherd that was actually from Tekoa, which is in the southern parts of Israel, and he actually traveled up to the northern parts because God had commissioned him, had called him to prophesy to the tribes in the north. So a little bit of recap, we saw God, what, what God prophesied through Amos to the surrounding nations of Israel. We saw what God prophesied to Judah in the south, and now we're looking at, we started last week, looking at what God prophesied to the northern tribes in Israel, the 10 northern tribes in Israel. So, interesting, really cool thing to think about because Amos is kind of like a good old boy, right? He's not like a city guy, he's not like a politician, he doesn't really understand a lot of those kinds of things. He's he's a good old country boy, he he, he lived out in, in in the, in the, in the, 
took care of sheep, and, and he was just out in the wilderness. He wasn't corrupted by the city and by the things of Samaria that, that he prophesied against. So he came in with a good and a clear uh, perspective and understanding. Um, Israel, at this point in time, was extremely prosperous. Okay, financially, especially in the north, they were extremely financially prosperous. They were doing well. Okay, they were well off, much like our culture today in America. We're very well off. We're very prosperous. Okay? Even in recession, we're still wealthy beyond some people in this world's dreams. We have so much wealth. We have so much prosperity. We have so much comfort, much like Israel. Okay? King Jeroboam II was doing a great job as far as that goes. But at the same time, even though they were prosperous, even though they were comfortable, even though there was a lot of finance and a lot of money, a lot of prosperity, there was also a lot of sin going on, okay? Um, as we looked at last week, Israel was not taking care of the poor. In fact, not only were they not taking care of the poor, it says in, in, in chapter two that they were treating them like dust of the earth, walking over them, crushing them into the ground like nothing. By the way, junior hires, are there any juniors in here? Did they all leave? I forgot to tell them. You got it, okay, good. Oh, space cadet. Um, Anyways, what was I saying? What was I talking about? I don't even remember now. You guys are listening. Good job. Okay. Um, so Israel's not taking care of the poor. There, there's rampant injustice. And so God is prophesying through Amos to these tribes. And that's kind of what's going on. Now, um, the message that Amos brought, I love it because he didn't water it down. He shot it straight. I love that about Amos. He came in, he said what he had to say, he said what the Lord had put on his heart, he spoke directly, um, he didn't sugarcoat it, and it's, some of it's tough, some of it's hard, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it for you guys either. We're gonna look at it, we're gonna see what God said, we're gonna believe what God said, because it's God's word. Not only did he shoot it straight, but he wasn't received, okay? Something inter- interesting to note about Amos, and most prophets the same way, his message was not received, It was not received. It was a tough message. He came into a culture that was completely opposite of what the message was he was bringing, and they did not receive it. Alistair Bagg, one of the greatest, I think, Scottish preachers, he said this about Amos' message. He said, if you go into an environment that is marked by material prosperity, that is marked by moral perversity, that is framed by spiritual complacency, and speak the way Amos spoke, you will find that people do not have a ready response to what is proclaimed. Okay, Amos came in to prophesy to a group of people that were spiritual, spiritually complacent. They didn't want to serve the Lord with authenticity. They didn't want to serve the poor. They didn't want to walk in justice. They didn't want to hear from God. It says in chapter two that they actually forced the prophets to shut up because they didn't want to listen to them. They didn't want to hear from God. And Amos steps into that culture and brings a hard word from the Lord, a hard word calling for repentance, and they don't want to hear it. Much like our culture today, right? (laughs) Much like our culture today. What happens is God is the ultimate truth, right? God is the ultimate truth. Next to the word truth, you might as well just, it's synonymous with God. Anything that God is, anything that God does, anything that God says is truth, okay? He is synonymous with truth. Now, what we do as fallen and sinful creatures, born into sin because of our father Adam, by nature, by choice, what we do is we take what is true, what is of God, the word, his, his word, and we twist it, right, and we change it. We twist it until we almost don't even know anymore what's truth, 
right? You guys ever got caught up in a wave before, uh, surfing or something, and, and you get fumbled around so much you almost don't even know which way is up and which way is down. It's kind of scary. You guys ever had that feeling before? They've twisted the truth so much that they don't even know what God's word truly is anymore. Even though they have his word, even though they're still continuing to worship God, they've lost sight of what truth even really is. Now Amos comes in bringing truth, but they don't recognize it. Because they've twisted it, they've changed it so much and and, uh, perverting it to a point that they can't even recognize it. That's why Paul says in Romans, right, he says that we need to renew our minds. We need to renew our minds because when we get saved, our minds are all twisted with lies and with untruths, thinking that that is completely contrary to, to, to God's truth. We need to renew our minds through the word. In the book of Acts in 17, I'll just read it, Paul comes up to some of the Stoic philosophers and, 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 and these guys that just sat around all day discussing philosophy and different gods and different religions and he notices all of the different statues to all of the different gods and he gets in this conversation with them and it says, um, so they say, for, uh, for they, sorry, and they took him and brought him to Areopagus saying, may we now, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So these guys, Paul brings in the gospel, and they're like, this is weird. This is strange. This is completely foreign to us. Earlier in the chapter, if you guys remember, Jesus, or Jesus, Paul comes up to the Jews, and they say, these are the guys that are flipping the world upside down. Okay? What was happening in Acts in the early church is Paul and Peter and, and, and the apostles in the early church were flipping the world upside down. But you and I know they weren't actually flipping the world upside down. They were what? Flipping it right side up. <laughs> because we, in our sinful nature, we twist everything. We flip everything upside down. That's what Satan does. That's what we do. We're naturally wired to do that, to take a truth and to make it a lie. Now, when Paul came in with the gospel, he wasn't bringing anything new. He wasn't bringing anything strange. What he was bringing was the truth. And so too with Amos, right? So too with Amos. Now, for us in our day, much like Amos, we're in a culture that has taken the truth of God and completely completely turned it upside down, right? Completely turned it upside down. If you guys ever shared the gospel with someone and they look at you like you have worms crawling out of your ears, it's not because the gospel's weird. The gospel is actually the only true thing we know, right? Anything that is from God, the word of God is the only thing that is absolutely untainted and true. Everything else is weird and funky. So it's so interesting. Our culture has transformed God's truth into something completely different. What have they transformed him into? It's seemingly, in our American culture, we've transformed God from a true and holy and powerful God who defines himself and demands the praise due to him into a milk toast Santa Claus God, right? The one that just kind of drops by every once in a while and drops packages into your chimney and wishes you well. You don't have to, to commune with him. You don't have to answer to him. You don't have to believe in him. You don't have to obey him. He's just sort of this mystical figure, right? That's where universalism is so popular in our country. Pick your God, whatever one you want. Just pick one, worship the one you want, make up your own. It doesn't matter, right? This is what we've done with the truth of God in our culture, We've taken, we've gone from letting him define himself in the word through books like Amos that are hard to defining him for ourselves. We've become the planet. I'm sorry, we've become the sun and he's the planet. He revolves around us. Our God is there to do everything that we want to do rather than the other way around. Now the reason that tonight is so important and this message is so important is because you can't get around it. The holiness of God is there. It's there, it burns like the sun, you cannot miss it, you cannot 
ignore it. You cannot wish it away. We have to deal with the holiness of God. And the holiness of God, as we'll look at, the holiness of God will expand our understanding of the grace of God. So, let's take a look at it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Amos says, hear this word. Hear this word. He says, listen up. This is important. He's speaking to Israel. That the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. So Amos opens up. He says, listen up. Hear this word. He speaks specifically to Israel. But it's interesting that God, through him, refers to them as the whole family. Okay, remember I said they're divided? It's kind of like God doesn't care. Yeah, you're divided, whatever, but I'm speaking to Israel, all of them. You guys divided yourself and my heart and my mind. God says you're still one nation. So he speaks to one nation. Verse two, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So first the Lord says, you only have I known. Now he's talking to Israel, okay? He says, you only have I known. What's he talking about there? Now, hundreds of years before this, the earth was filled with all rebellious people. No one was seeking after the Lord. Okay, no one was seeking after the Lord. God pulled a man of, of no consequence, of no importance, out of a place called Ur, a man that was most likely worshiping, uh, worshiping idols in a pagan place with pagan people. He pulled a nobody out of a place called Ur named Abram, and, and he, he, he pulled him out, and he gave him, he gave him promises, he gave him covenants, he was the friend of God. He gave him everything. Now you guys know Abraham, not only did, not only did he, he call him his friend, not only did he give him salvation, he also gave him the promise of a people that would come. And that people would be Israel, starting with Abraham, the friend of God. So God pulled Abraham out of all nations of the earth. Israel is God's people. Okay, they are God's people. They were selected to be his. Now that word know there is an intimacy. It's a closeness. It's a communion. God had with Abraham. If you go back and look at Abraham, it's really amazing just to see. Abraham was a friend of God. They had communion. And because of that, God made covenant with Abraham. And all of the, all of the children of Abraham became a nation. And God chose that nation, and he revealed his truth to that nation, and he saved that nation. He freed them from Exodus and parted the sea and fed them in the wilderness and put them into a land and made them a nation, a chosen nation. And he knew them. So this is how the Lord refers to them. He says, you who I've known of all the families of the earth, And then he says, therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, I want to talk about this word punish here, okay, because this is where we get hung up, the punishment of God, the chastisement of God. Three quick things, if you're taking notes, three quick things to understand about the punishment that God does towards his children, okay? Number one, number one, and this is in our text, with great privilege comes the heavy weight of responsibility. With great privilege comes the heavy weight of responsibility, You see, Israel had been given great privilege, hadn't they? They'd been revealed the truth of God. They had the presence of God. They had the Ark of the Covenant, right? God fought their battles for them. He delivered them. He gave them great position. 
But with that great position came a heavy responsibility. If you're born into a royal family, let's say hundreds of years ago when kings ruled, kings and queens, if you're born into that royal family, you're given great, great position. And you're given great privilege. You probably have a lot of wealth because of that. But into great privilege and great wealth also comes great responsibility because someday you will have to lead your country, right? And so too, we are princes and princesses of the Most High God. Israel was selected to be God's chosen people, and as such, they had great responsibility. They knew better. They knew better. The state that that Amos finds them in is just, it's amazing. How do God's people who know the truth drift so far? Secondly, God's love demands chastisement. It demands punishment. Let me explain what I mean by that. God loves his people too much to allow them to live in sin. He will not have spoiled children. He loves you too much. He loves me too much to allow us to live and partake in something that will kill us. I love to spoil my daughter. I love to spoil her. She's so precious to me. I want to give her everything she wants. I want to give her food when she wants food. I want to give her a toy when she wants a toy. I love to spoil her, but I hate to see her spoiled. And I cannot let her be spoiled because I love her too much, right? And so when I recognize that, when I see that, I have to deal with it. And I can't give her everything she wants because she will get spoiled. It's funny, it's like a, it's like a week-long pendulum with, with her, you know? Like, she's, she's one and a half, you know? And we'll, we'll, we just want to give her what she wants because we love her. But then the more we give her what she wants, the more she gets spoiled and we have to pull things back, right? We can't give her everything she wants because then she demands it. It's the same with the Lord. Listen, guys, this is huge. God takes sin within his people very seriously. He takes it very seriously because he knows the price that it costs. The consequence of sin is death. He knows the price because he paid for it. He knows the price because he paid for it. He takes sin and his people very seriously. If he didn't chastise, if he didn't punish, he wouldn't be loving, would he? He wouldn't be loving. And thirdly, it's important to remember as we read this that this is not a covenant-breaking punishment. This is not God removing his covenant from Israel and saying, I'm no longer your father, I'm no longer your king. No, the covenant still stands. This is God removing blessing so that he does not have spoiled children. Okay, there's a difference. The covenant still stands. So, the Lord through Amos in verse three proceeds to illustrate this judgment with a series of rhetorical questions. Kind of interesting, actually. Verse three, he says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So he gives a series, this list of rhetorical questions. Look, for, for, for um, there's a reason for everything. He says, did two walk together unless they have agreed to me? okay. So can you walk with someone if you aren't going in the same direction? If you hadn't had a conversation and say, here's where we're going, let's go together. If you're arguing, no, you don't. You don't. You just don't walk together. He says, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No, he doesn't. 
roar before he gets to the prey, it would scare him away. He waits till after. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? No, obviously. He's giving these rhetorical kind of extreme examples to illustrate a fact that God does not speak without action. God does not prophesy for, for fun. He doesn't, he doesn't prophesy that God's going to judge just to make noise. He says, no, it's going to happen. If you guys do not repent, if you do not turn away from this wickedness, it's going to happen. Verse seven, we see uh, that Israel, there's, there's a gap here, okay? So he gives these rhetorical questions, and then in verse seven, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servant, the prophets. And then verse eight is key. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? It's what I love about God. He's so gracious in that he does not just come and judge, does he? He gives warning. He sends the prophets. He gives warning and says, my judgment is coming. His heart is that Israel would repent. His heart is that their worship would be turned back to him and away from idols. His heart is that they would be melted by the goodness of him and and into repentance. That's his heart. And he sends the prophets hoping that they will repent. He says, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? Jesus in Luke 20 began to tell a parable. He says, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants. You guys have heard this before. And went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant They also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. It's interesting because here, hundreds of years later, Jesus is giving this parable, and what this parable is illustrating is the history of Israel. That God made a vineyard, and that vineyard was Israel. And he gave over that vineyard to the religious leaders to lead them and to guide them in righteousness. And he's speaking this parable to the religious leaders, right? To lead them. But yet they took it for themselves. And so the, the, the owner would send a servant to go and collect. And they would beat him and send him away. And they'd send another servant. And they'd kill him and send him away. And then finally he sent his son. Sound familiar? For hundreds and hundreds of years, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel, begging and pleading to repent, to hear and to see the goodness of God, and they beat them and they ignored them, and just like Amos, they refused to hear the word until finally he sent the last prophet, his son, and what did they do to him? They beat him and they killed him. It's interesting God sends prophets. Do you not hear the lion roar? He still sends prophets today. Not in the form of scripture, obviously, but God speaks, does he not? Through his word. God speaks through each each other prophetically all the time. Amos would say to Israel, the lion is roaring. Are you listening? And I want to say to you guys, 
A lion is roaring. Are you listening? Are you listening to what God has been trying to tell you? Are you listening to that? Perhaps what needs to be said tonight is not a feel-good message, as much as I love giving those. Perhaps what needs to be said tonight is a bucket of water in your face. Wake up. Is God prophesying to you? Is God speaking to you? Are you ignoring him? Are you ignoring him? The lion has roared, have you not listened? Ephesians 5.14 says, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Revelation 3.20, it talks about the different churches and Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. That's not an evangelistic message right there. That's to the church. Jesus is standing outside the church door to the believer, knocking and saying, you're my child and you've shut me out. (laughs) He's knocking on the door of the believer's heart saying, where are you? Through people like Amos, saying the lion has roared. Are you listening? Wake up. Guys, this is prophetic for me this week. I feel like I've just been in this spiritual laziness for so long now where I just, I don't pursue God. I don't do anything that's hard. I don't discipline myself to actually pursue God. I just, this spiritual laziness. And I read this and God's like shaking me like, wake up, oh sleeper. The time is now, I'm here. The time is now, serve me. The time is now, there's people hurting. There's people going to hell. Wake up. The the lion is roared. Are we listening? I don't want to be Israel. I don't want to be Israel in the north who completely shuts out the prophet that comes to reveal truth. I don't want to be that. Verse nine. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, the Lord says. Now Ashdod was the Philistines, okay, near the Gaza Strip today. And to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumult within her and the oppressed in her midst. So this is interesting. God calls the enemies, essentially the enemies, the Philistines, the Egyptians, to come up on the mountains around Samaria and to watch how he punishes Israel. That's interesting to me. The people that Israel's been at war with for hundreds of years. God says, all of you, the enemies of Israel, come up to the mountains around Samaria, the capital, and watch how I chastise, watch how I punish my people. Now, first of all, why did the Middle Eastern people hate Israel so much? Why were they constantly at war with Israel? Why were the Philistines constantly trying to take them out? The Egyptians constantly trying to take them out. Because the God of the Jews flew in the face of everything they believed. They were polytheists. They believed in multiple gods. And here comes this nation who takes this land that God gave to them and they start talking about this monotheistic God, one God, right? That everyone has to answer to him. Flew in the face of everything that they believed. Now, God called Israel for more than to just be his people. He called them to be, like you and I, evangelists. He planted Israel like a garden, like a vineyard in a wild place, hoping that he would show them his holiness, show them the law, show them the goodness that 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 Israel would minister to the Gentiles. That was his hope. But yet here, 700 years before Christ, we find Israel in the complete opposite place, looking exactly like the surrounding nations. So it's almost as if God is saying, come all nations and witness, witness the severity of my holiness. It's almost like he's saying, come, see my zeal for my holiness of my people. Come, 
It's almost like he says, if Israel would not display my holiness, if Israel isn't gonna show you how holy I am and how good I am, then I want you to come and I'll show you how holy I am by how I chastise them. You say, that seems brutal, right? It seems brutal. This is, this is important, so if you've zoned out this whole time, just cue in for this, okay? Did you know that God is zealous for his holiness? This is like the least preached topic ever, and I don't know why. Did you know that God is zealous for his holiness? Listen to this. Tell me if you've heard this verse before. Ezekiel 36, 22 says, Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. What is that saying? The Lord's saying it's not about you. Did you guys know that? It's not about you guys. Sometimes as the church, we just, we we talk so much about what the Lord's done for us that I think sometimes we forget that this whole thing is not about us. Do you know that? The universe is not about us. God's creation is not about us. God's kingdom is not about us. God is not about us. You know what God's about? Himself. You know what God is for, ultimately? Himself. You say, that's egotistical. That's prideful, right? No, it's not. It's not at all. God is for his holiness over everything. God is for himself over all things. And you may say that sounds egotistical, but what is egotistical? Okay, what is prideful? You think of the guy walking around, flexing his muscles, the guy thinking he's a big shot, the guy that thinks he's the man, right? That's egotistical. Why? Because he's not. It's stupid and silly and sinful because he's not the man, because he's not strong, because he's weak. No matter how much time he spends in the gym, all God would have to do is go boink and he's gone, right? That's stupid to be prideful when you have nothing to be prideful about. But God is all power and glory in the universe. Do you get that? God is all power and glory. I can't even, the words just won't even explain what I'm trying to say right now. If anyone can and should and ought to be prideful and about himself, it's God. Because there's none greater and none stronger than God. When we think of pride, we think of sinful pride. God is about his holiness. God is about his glory. And you and I are invited, because he loves us, to take part in his glory, but God does not revolve around you and me. Does not revolve around you and me. May we never forget that. Why is this important? Why am I getting upset about this? Not upset, worked up. Why am I getting worked up about this? Because people never talk about it. (laughs) We don't wanna talk about the holiness of God. And it's selling ourselves short. Listen to this. The higher view you have of God's holiness, the higher view you will have of God's grace. Do you get that? If you have a small view of God's holiness and God's justice and God's wrath, then your view of grace is very limited. Oh, God saved me. Okay, saved you from what? Well, from drugs and and alcohol. Well, yeah. So AA groups do that all the time. No, God didn't save me from, yeah, drugs and from alcohol. Yes, he did. God saved me from eternal wrath and justice that was abiding on my sinful self. (laughs) I was born into a war with God that I waged. Every fiber in my being hated God. 
That was what I was born into, and wrath abode on me, and God's grace completely paid for me to be completely set free and completely loved in full and total adoption in eternity forever, enjoying God's glory. The size of God's holiness in your mind will determine the size of God's grace. If you don't want to think about a, a God that's holy and the, that, that's about his holiness and about his glory and about his strength and has zeal for his holiness, then your idea of grace is pathetic. It's pathetic. He saved me so I could be happy and have money and whatever this health and wealth stuff is. He saved me from an eternity of judgment. He made me perfect and holy and gave me all that Jesus had to give. That is a big view of grace. The more we understand of God's holiness, the more we understand of God's grace. Until we understand how much we needed to be saved, we'll never understand how amazing it is that we are saved. What we've been saved from. Verse 10. They do not know how to do right, the Lord says. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. We see in this verse that uh, just the depths of the wickedness of Israel, that they had literally forgotten what it is to even do right, to serve the Lord. Violence and robbery had become as normal as breathing to them. They didn't even know they were doing it. Just breathing in and breathing out was just constantly violence and injustice against the poor, against the oppressed. Verse 11, therefore thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered, thus says the Lord. As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with me with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. So, God's proclaiming the severity of the judgment that's gonna happen to Israel. And he says that they're gonna be like a shepherd that went looking for his sheep that disappeared and the sheep's been devoured by a lion and all that's left is two legs and an ear. (laughs) Brutal, right? Brutal. And what's interesting about that is historically, now we know that's basically what Israel looked like. I mean, from the great nation that they were after being taken over by um, nation after nation, by the Persians and carried off away by the Babylonians and so on and so forth, they were reduced to hardly anything. They were reduced to hardly anything. But listen, is that not God's grace? Is that not God's grace? Because, and I mean this, I would rather enter into eternal glory with God as a sheep with only two legs and an ear, than to have my whole body and everything that this world had to offer and be cast into hell forever. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? God says, I will reduce Israel to nothing if that's what it takes for them to realize what matters, for them to realize that the gods that they're worshiping are dead, they don't exist for them to realize that the sin that they're drinking is poisonous, it's killing them. He says, I will do whatever I have to do because I love my people. This is not God's grace. What what if I gain the whole world but lose my soul? Is there anything more important 
There's nothing more valuable than eternity with God and obedience to him. And we would be so lucky if God has to reduce us to that, but it means that we remember what matters and that he is all that matters. That's a tough message. People don't want to hear that. They don't want to think about that. But we have such a death grip on this world. We love this world and we love our sin and we love what God hates so much that sometimes, sometimes it takes a lot to get us to let go. But is it not God's grace that he does what it takes? Verse 14, and this is key and we'll close with this. Then on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the gray houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Now this is important. This is the heart, the key of this text is what God specifically pinpoints his judgment. If his judgment was a sword, the tip of it is pressing on two things in Israel. Two things. Number one is their altars, their worship, and number two is their possessions. The issue, the issue with Israel is the altar, their worship, and their possessions. Now, in case any of you in here are wondering or if you're new or maybe you don't know the Lord and this sounds like just this really heavy, bummer message, here's the thing. Amos is not a call to just do what's right. A lot of people would take this book and see if you don't do what's right, God's gonna smite you. (laughs) That's not what Amos is saying, okay? It's not what Amos is saying. Amos isn't saying, the Lord isn't saying through Amos that just do what's right, just try harder, just make good moral decisions, okay? Just do what's right, just, just wait till marriage and don't, don't smoke and don't drink and just do what's right. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, pull out your morality and just do what the Lord says. It's not what Amos is saying. It's not what Amos is saying. It's not the gospel, What Amos is saying is that God is pinpointing their worship and their possessions because those are the issues. Their issues are the worship and their issues are their stuff. At the heart of sin and spiritual complacency lies not a lack of discipline or moralism or resolve. If I was more disciplined, if I was more resolved, if I was more moral, then maybe I'd be a better Christian. God's wrath wouldn't be upset with me. That's not the issue. God isn't trying trying to get Israel to try harder. Okay, but rather a misplaced love of the wrong thing. It all comes down to what you value. It all comes down to what you value. All sin is an issue of not valuing God properly. Let me say that again. All sin is an issue of not valuing God properly. John Piper said this, he says, what is sin? What is sin? It is the glory of God not honored. It is the holiness of God not reverenced. It is the greatness of God not admired. It's the power of God not praised. It's the truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. 
The commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. That is sin. Guys, at the heart, at the root of every sin that you and I struggle with every second of every day is not a just try harder. It's not a be more moral. It's not a be more resolved. At the very heart of every sin that we struggle with is an issue of value. It's an issue of value. It's that we're not valuing God's holiness over that moment of pleasure, that thought that pops into our head. It's that we're not valuing God's love over the condemnation that we like to feel. It's that we're not valuing God's grace over how good we feel when we feel like we worked for our faith. Every sin at the heart is an issue of value. It's an issue of not making God valuable enough so that sin is an issue. So loving him more has to precede loving sin in the world less. It's not about I just need to try harder, I just need to love the world less. If we love God more, everything will fall into place. God wasn't judging Israel for having too much stuff. He wasn't judging them for being too prosperous. He was judging them because their value system was jacked. God wasn't even in the list of what was valuable to them. He wasn't even the list. Everything was more important to them than God. The ultimate riches, the ultimate wealth in the universe was nothing to them. It's not about loving the world less, it's about loving God more. That's good news. I don't know about you guys. That's good news for me. Sometimes I just, how do I love things, like, even good things, like my family? How do I love my family less? It's not about loving my family less. It's not about loving my job less. It's not about loving fun things less, jet skiing or snowboarding or camping. It's not about loving money less. It's not about loving stuff less or watching TV less. It's all about loving God more. Because when you love him more, you will naturally love things that don't matter less. When you put the appropriate value on the valuable one, then all of your possessions and all of your things will fall into the rightful place. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, right? And all these things will be added. That is so true. (laughs) It's so true. Seek him first. Make him valuable. Make him your joy. Make him your riches. And everything will be added unto you. Nothing will matter. Your marriage will be okay. Your kids will turn out all right. Your job will work out. Your bills will get paid. And if they don't, you won't care because he is enough. Seek first the kingdom. It's so true. It's so true. Jesus has a conversation, remember, with a guy. Comes up to him, charismatic, rich, affluent, wealthy guy, and he says, Jesus, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? And, and, and Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And he says, lists off some of the laws. And, and he says, well, all of these I've, I've obeyed since my birth. Jesus says, okay, good job, you know. He says, now go sell everything you have and follow me. Now what's happening there? Is, is Jesus saying that in order to be saved that we have to go sell everything that we have and be poor and move to Africa and be a missionary? Is that the only way we can get into the kingdom? No. What Jesus is doing with the rich young ruler was exactly what God did here to Amos in this prophecy. He pinpointed a cancer, and that cancer was their value system. Their cancer was their worship. They were worshiping stuff. They were worshiping their houses, their multiple houses. 
Jesus wasn't saying, if you go sell everything, you can come follow me and that's, that's how you get saved. No, Jesus was saying, hey, come follow me because I'm a better treasure. I'm a greater value than your stuff. But what happened? The guy went away and he was sorrowful. <laughs> because what? He had many possessions. So selling our stuff doesn't get us into heaven. It's not the point. Jesus was saying, I am all infinite value, eternal worth in the world. Are you willing to give up your garbage for me? And the guy wasn't. Because he valued his garbage more than he valued the riches of Jesus. Just like you and I do all the time. The heart of the Lord today on this Wednesday evening is exactly the same as it was almost 3,000 years ago when he spoke through the prophet Amos to Israel. And that is that he would say this to Heritage tonight. He would say, I am the ultimate good for every creation. And he loves us enough to allow us to see that. If he doesn't allow us to see that, then how can he love us? If he doesn't take away things sometimes that we worship as believers, when we idolize things, if he doesn't help us to deal with that and realize that he is enough, then how can he love us? And that's exactly what he does with Israel. He says, I have to take away this prosperity because it's killing you, because it's causing you to worship something and value something higher than the ultimate value, the eternal value, and that is myself. Just remember, guys, just remember, The issue is never moralism. It's not try harder. It's not do more. It's not be more resolved. It's not be more disciplined. It's love God according to the value that he actually has. And he is infinitely, eternally wealthy. When we value him rightly, everything else falls into place. That's, I don't know about you guys, that's something I can, I can get a hold of. I'm not giving you a list of 20 do's and applications that you gotta go home and do. I'm just saying, if you value God correctly, everything will fall into place. Everything will fall into place. That's the gospel. God says, I am everything that you need. And on the cross, he purchased the way for us to be able to enjoy him forever, to be invited with him to a feast in eternity. Amen? Let's stand. God, I thank you so much tonight for your holiness. I thank you that you are about you. And I'm okay with that because you're the greatest thing that there ever has been and ever will be. Lord, tonight I pray over this body, Lord, I just ask for every person in front of me right now, Lord, that you would awake our sleeping hearts that are drunk and tired from being obsessed with things that are worthless. Lord, our minds and our hearts are so focused on junk and stuff that doesn't matter and stresses that don't matter. God, would you replace that junk that fills our hearts and sits on the thrones of our hearts, would you replace it with your infinite worth? Would you replace it with love for you that will satisfy every part of our being? Lord, help us to love you more, God. Help us to know you more because when we know you more, we will love you more. Thank you for being you, God.
Thank you for inviting us, Lord, into your grace. We love you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a good night. We'll see you Sunday.